The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 46 of The Murder of My Family. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Before we get started with this episode, I just wanted to update you on something I mentioned in the last episode regarding the American Crime Festival. It was scheduled to happen here in South Jersey this November. Unfortunately, the event has been postponed until a later date. If and when I get more details, I'll be sure to share them with you. Thank you, and now on with the show. This episode is timely because it's being released in October, which is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and this case deals with that very topic. In 2018, the nonprofit organization Violence Policy Center, based out of Washington, D.C., conducted a study called the American Roulette and found that 663 people died in the United States during the first six months of 2017 in murder-suicide incidents. Florida ranks third as the highest number of murder-suicide deaths and cases in the country, trailing behind Texas and California. So far in 2019 alone, Florida's had several murder-suicides, and one of them we are discussing in this episode. While most murder-suicides involve a man and a woman, that isn't always the case. In March of 2019, the lives of two young men ended after a jealous rage which turned into a murder-suicide in a small town in the Panhandle of Florida. Their deaths devastated loved ones who were left behind. Michael Paul Burke was born on December 20, 1982 to Joe and Martha Burke. He was a graduate of Liberty County High School in Bristol, Florida, and he loved to hunt and fish. He worked for Southeast Shipbuilders in Panama City and lived in Hosford. On the night of March 23, 2019, Michael was visiting the home of Kimberly Story Geiger, a mother of two that he was dating. Kimberly lived at the corner of Highway 67 and Blueberry Trail in Tologia, 
just a few miles south of Hosford. At the time, Kimberly was estranged from her husband, 31-year-old Dustin Martin, who lived in Quincy, Florida. The couple had one child together, a two-year-old boy named Landry, and they shared visitation. Dustin had a daughter from a previous relationship, and Kimberly had an eight-year-old daughter from a previous marriage. Earlier in the day, Dustin picked Landry up from Kimberly's house, and that afternoon, he returned him without incident and left the premises. At around 9 p.m. that night, Michael Paul Burke was visiting Kimberly and her two kids when Dustin drove by Kimberly's house and noticed Michael's truck parked in the driveway. For some reason, maybe out of jealousy, Dustin flew into a wild rage. He stopped his truck on the road, walked over to Michael's truck, and slashed the tires. Michael saw Dustin from the window and went outside to confront him. The two got into a fight, and suddenly, without warning, Dustin stabbed Michael multiple times with a knife used to slash the tires. Wounded and bleeding, Michael ran back into Kimberly's house and locked the door. Meanwhile, Dustin went back to his truck and grabbed the pistol. He returned to the house and realized it was locked, so he busted a window and crawled through, entering the home. Dustin stormed through the house looking for Michael. He found him in a back room where he was taking care of his wounds. Dustin then shot Michael twice and hit him at least once in the back, killing him. At 9.35 p.m., Liberty County Sheriff's Office deputies responded to a 911 call about a physical altercation at Kimberly's residence. The caller told the operator that at least one of the men was armed with a gun. By the time they arrived on scene, both men were dead. Kimberly told the deputies what happened between Dustin and Michael. She also said that after Dustin killed Michael, he walked into the living room where she was and stood in front of her, but he didn't speak. Instead, he put the gun to his head and pulled the trigger, killing himself. Thankfully, Kimberly and her children were not injured, but the trauma they endured will likely have long-lasting effects. Not long after the shootings, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Crime Lab was sent to the scene, and the bodies were taken to the medical examiner's office in Tallahassee. Autopsies were performed by the Second Circuit Medical Examiner's Office and the deaths were officially ruled murder-suicide. Liberty County Sheriff Eddie Joe White, who was Michael Paul Burke's cousin, said he was not aware of any previous conflicts between Michael and Dustin. On the surface, it seems surprising to many that Dustin might be capable of such violence. After all, he had a good job as a journeyman lineman with Talcon Electric, where he had been employed for 13 years. According to his obituary, he was a loyal friend and loved by those that knew him, and was always willing to help a friend in need. We will never truly know why Dustin Martin snapped and ended his own life, and that of Michael Burks. But on that fateful night, he did far more damage than in two lies. His children will grow up without a father, and the families of both men will never be the same again. But to Kim, it wasn't a total shock because she had witnessed firsthand moments of physical violence and threats at the hands of her husband. She was so scared that she backed out of filing a restraining order against him because she was afraid of what he might do when he found out about it. Kimberly Story Geiger joined me to recount that painful and horrific night in March 2019 and discuss how she's trying to move forward. That conversation is coming up in just a moment.
Hi, Kimberly. Thanks for joining me to discuss Michael's case with us. Hi. Thank you for having me. So you're, you're sharing something with us today that's still, I assume, very fresh in your mind. It happened only months ago in, in March of this year. Uh, am I correct in assuming that you wanted to get this story out because you feel that maybe it'll help uh, others or be a warning to people, somebody out there that might be in a similar situation to yours? Yes, absolutely. I think um, this situation maybe could have been dealt with a different avenue had law enforcement stepped in the multiple times I've reached out to them for their help. And and you didn't get anywhere with with that? No, no. After multiple phone calls, um, that he was never arrested. There was never a restraining order put on him or anything after several, several calls to the police department. And, and a bit of a backstory here, and, and feel free to correct this as needed, but you were married once and had one child, and then you got remarried to Dustin Martin, and together you had a child. Um but it was during that Correct. second marriage to Dustin that things happened that led you to seek a divorce. And I assume some of that stuff was related to abuse or physical violence. Correct. Um, for the first few years of our relationship, it was pretty normal. Actually, I thought he was kind of like the perfect husband. He was the poster child for the, you know, the man that you hope to marry. He would bring me flowers. We'd go on surprise dates, you know. Run the bath, bring me wine, and, you know, bring me a glass of wine to sit in the shower, to sit in the tub and relax. And just, you know, really, I thought he was the perfect guy. And it wasn't until after my son was born, we got married, and my dad passed, that I really kind of seen a different side to him that I had no idea existed. And, and what do you think caused that change? Um, he was really adamant from the very beginning of me getting married, and I wasn't so sure about that because I had just got out of a marriage. We were actually in the middle of a divorce when me and Dustin started dating, but we had me and my first husband had been separated for quite some time. So I was just reluctant to get back in that situation, and that was something that he seemed to be, it seemed to be very important to him. And I feel like once I took that step, it kind of gave him the possession, I guess, over me. It's the only way I can describe it. And how how long were you married to him? Um, we got married in December of 2016, and our divorce would have been final uh, April of 2019. Did you notice once you, you, you felt that, you know, you mentioned your father passed away, and then at around the same time, he this change happened in him. Was it gradual, or was it sudden, and, and how long did it go on for? Um... He had he had expressed to me a little bit of the domestic, like he didn't actually physically put his hands on me, but he had done things in the past that made me feel like he could have, but he just brushed it off like, ha ha ha, I was just joking with you, like he pushed me on the bed and then jumped on the bed and was like wrestling with me. Well, acted like it was a joke and, you know, no big deal. And then shortly after we got married, my dad passed, it really just escalated. We went from arguing one day and... He grabbed me by the throat, slung me into the wall in front of the kids, and that was the first time he had ever done anything of that nature. So you felt a, a definite, like a line had mm -hmm. been crossed and he had changed uh, drastically. Yes. And I, I guess at some point after dealing with it, you decided that it was better and safer for you and your kids to leave Dustin. Um, 
And I, I can only imagine you, you know, it wasn't going to be easy leaving, but at the same time, you think it's best for you and your kids um, to, to start to move on with your life and, and get this divorce in the process. Um, and it was being finalized. And that's when you began dating Michael Burke. Um, tell us a little, a little right. bit about Michael. Um, well, Michael are from the same town. He was a little bit older than me. Um, we're from a really small town, you know, one caution lot, so everybody knows everybody. And he and I just kind of reconnected via Snapchat, just become friends. And we went on a date, and pretty much from then on out, it was, we were together. Um, but that was, I would end of August, early September, and me and Dustin had separated in July. So it was pretty quickly after. But Dustin had already moved in with another woman. Like, he and her were supposed to be engaged. And I was under the impression that both of us were going on with our own life and that everyone was happy. So you're just trying to move on. Things are going good for you. Mm -hmm. It seems like he's moving on on his end. Um, Was there any Mm -hmm. animosity did he he have, um, you know, uh, any issues uh, with Michael personally before uh, you started dating him? Had they known each other? He had only met Michael once before in like a group setting. Like I said, a small, it's, it, we're from a really small town, so he had met Michael in that group setting, and I think that kind of made him feel as if maybe something had been going on previously before our separation, but it had not. Um, and I just think, you know, maybe because we're all from the same town, hung out with the same crowd, maybe that's what caused him to have issues with Michael specifically, but yeah, I think it definitely was a specific issue with Michael. And so this day happens, it's March 23rd this year, 2019. Um, Mm -hmm. And Michael shows up, you know, he's at your house. Is he living with you or just visiting or? No, he was just visiting. visiting. Um, He actually lived, he actually lived about an hour and a half away from here. So we would only see each other every weekend, every other weekend, depending on our schedule with with my kids because he didn't have children and um, things like that. So, so Dustin shows up at this point. Um, was he expected there, or did he show up out of the blue? Well, actually, we had had some issues after the separation. Our main issue was custody of our son, who at the time um, of the separation was turning two, had just turned two. Like I said, we separated in September, at the end of August, beginning of September, which would have been right when the baby turned two. Um, and I had found out he had been leaving the baby with people that I wasn't really um, comfortable with the baby being with. So we had had a really big issue about that. So actually the day of the murder, um, I had scheduled a visitation for Dustin and Landry at my home. Dustin was supposed to come over to the house. I told him he couldn't take the baby because I wasn't comfortable with who he was around and who he had my child around. But if he would like to spend time with his son, then he was more than welcome to do that. He could just do it at my house until, you know, we got something concrete through the court system. And he was fine with that. I even told him, you know, when you come, bring a pack of diapers because he wasn't helping me financially whatsoever at that point. And um, so he was like, okay, no problem. And he stopped by Walmart, brought a pack of diapers, and spent probably from, I would say, 12 to 6 p.m., 12 lunchtime until 6 p.m. with a son at the house, at my house. Was there some uh, altercation between him and Michael? 
Well, Michael had not showed up at this point. He was just, Dustin was just here spending time with the baby. Um, and he actually took the baby uptown, got the baby a snack, brought the baby back. The baby was asleep, and then Dustin left. And then a few hours later is when Michael showed up after he got off work. So I'm assuming um, after the 6 p.m. drop-off when he dropped the baby off, he must not have never, ever actually left town because shortly after that, he starts calling my phone and um, sending text messages talking about what's he doing there, this, that, and the other. Um, just really, really irate. Even though he knew, even though he knew earlier in the day that you know Michael was coming over because he had even said, "What's your boyfriend coming over?" And I was like, "Yeah," and he kind of made a joke about it and left. So he knew he was going to be visiting that afternoon. So I'm not sure what sparked it to have him so upset about the situation right then. Uh, and so he, I guess, he's mad that Michael's there. That's the whole crux of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which really never made sense to anyone because, you know, it was well known that we had been together, that I was spending weekends over there with him. And it wasn't like it was some, this was the first time he ever found out about it. It had been going on for several months. Wow. Uh, and so was it just a, a sudden, did he walk up to him and then just pick a fight with him? I mean, did were there words exchanged when, when they confronted each other? What happened? Um, he had been calling my phone back to back. Michael's in the kitchen. I'm in the kitchen. He goes, Oh my God, just call the cops. You know how, you know, just don't, don't even engage with him about this. Just call the cops and let them deal with it. I'm like, okay. And so I'm searching Liberty County Sheriff's Office number because I didn't think of the 911 situation at that point. I thought he was just, you know, calling and riding down the road, revving up his engine and trying to make sure that he was known that he was around. And the next thing I know, he starts pounding on the door. Dustin started pounding on the door. Well, when he started pounding on the door, Michael went to the door and snatched the door open. And words were exchanged between the two of them. And I was not standing close enough so I could see who threw the first punch. But they were just, the next thing I know, they were just entangled fighting. And then it escalated from there, from fighting to gunshots. Um, he, he and Dustin, he and Michael and Dustin were fighting and they would, you know, fight for a minute and break apart and then they would fight, they would connect again and it went on for, it seemed like a long time to me, but it probably wasn't. It just, it seemed like a really long time. But finally, um, at the end of the fight, like when they finally, the fight finally ended, they were in the ditch of my yard, and the neighbor had come over and was actually calling 911 because she seen everything that was going on. And um, Michael had Dustin pinned on his back in the ditch of the, my yard, and that's when Michael started screaming that um, Dustin had stabbed him. So at that point, I told Michael, I'm like, get off of him, just get off of him, just get off of him and come inside. So Michael grabbed his arms and kind of threw him off of him and tried to come inside. When Michael got up, Dustin got up and was trying to chase him around the yard with the, the, you know, waving the knife. Michael went around his truck trying to avoid him, and when he got to the front of the truck by my front door to my, ho to my home, um, I opened the door, and he come inside, and I padlocked the door. And at that point, the neighbor was on the phone with the, the cops because I had screamed at her to um, 
Hold on one. And we're in here, and I'm checking on Michael. I get a towel, and I'm like, you know, where were you? Because I could see that there was blood, but I couldn't really tell how deep or well or anything. And I was trying to see how serious his injuries were and where they were at. And I got him a towel, and I'm like, here, just put this on there, and I'm going to call 911. And he obviously didn't think it was very serious because he was like, no, 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 don't call 911. You can just take me to the emergency room. And I'm like, okay, well, let me just check you out, you know, put this on there. Let's see, you know, let me get somebody to come over here with the kids, blah, 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 blah. Well, the next thing I know, Justin's back at the door, pounding at the door, pounding at the door, pounding at the door. And I I didn't answer. I was hoping he would just go away or the cops would show up in the meantime. And they never did. Well, the next thing I know, he busts through the front window of the home. When he busted through the window of the home, I told Michael, I said, just go to my bedroom and lock the door. Just go to my bedroom and lock the door. And Dustin knocked the window out with his hand or gun or whatever. I'm not sure what he used because there was a curtain in the way, but you could just hear the window crashing. And he snatched the curtain back and pointed the gun at me. And he said, to bring that MFR out here. And I told him, I said, Dustin, please don't do this. Your son's in here. Your son's in, you know, your son's in the bedroom. And he was like, bring him out. And I said, I'm not, you know, you're, please don't do this. Your son's in here. And when I wouldn't go get Michael or call Michael to come to the front, he come through the window, brushed past me, went straight to the master bedroom, and I heard two gunshots. And then seconds later, he come back into the living room as if he was leaving, going to go out the front door. And he paused and put the gun to the side of his head and pulled the trigger. And and this is going on obviously while your your children are around. Did did they see it? It was about nine it was about nine thirty, so they had already been put in bed. But the location of where the shots were fired was maybe and this is being generous, maybe six or seven foot from my child's bed, from my son's bed. So so when these shots rang out, I mean how was it startling? Was it surprising? I mean, what what goes through your head at that at that time and, and when that happened? I, honestly, the only thing I could think of in my mind was no, this 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 not really happening. Like this can't really be happening. This can't really be happening. And even after I seen Dustin come in here and shoot himself, I'm standing here in the living room, just sitting here because I I honestly couldn't even process what had just happened. And it probably took me two days, really, to come out of that shock situation because I just remember just standing here and thinking, oh, my God, what, you know, what just, what just happened? How soon did you realize that men were hurt or dead or did you know that right away? I knew immediately that Dustin was dead um, because of his injury. I could look and tell that he, he was dead. And um, Michael had left from my bedroom and went to the spare bathroom. I guess trying to get away from him and um, he was laid up against my bathroom door, the spare bathroom door and I pushed my way in there and I could, he, he was not deceased at that very point in time, but I knew that it was, it was very, 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 very bad. Are you also tired of one size fits all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. 
Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The the EMTs are called, police are called, they get there, and how how did they treat uh, Michael? Was he uh, responsive? Was he by unconscious? That, by that time, he, by that time he, he had already passed. I um I was in there checking on him. I was in there checking on him. Um, after everything had happened, you know, after I realized this and the threat was gone, and I'm getting the mommy note, and I'm like, okay, let me go check on him. Oh my god, are my kids okay? You know, so I go in there and check on my kids, and the baby was starting to get up. I guess the noise had woke him up, but my daughter was still asleep. She was eight. That was she was seven at that point. No, she had just turned eight at that point in time, but she was she slept through it all. Um, but the baby was getting up and stirring, and so I grabbed the baby and took him to the neighbor's house. And then I come in here and try to check Michael's pulse and things like that. And that's when I realized that I couldn't find a pulse. So by the time the deputies came, they had already um, basically called the ambulance off because they knew that both of them were deceased at that point in time. And that's, uh, I, I don't know what goes through your mind here. You have the father of one of your children and the, the man that you're now dating that are both uh, dead. Um, was that numb? I mean, what do you feel in, the, in that moment? Yeah, I'm not really sure I was even feeling anything at that point in time. I just couldn't believe it had happened. I, I, I was just in disbelief. Like, I, this is a small town, you know, we have, we graduate in classes of 60, you don't think things like this happen in your town, and especially not to you. Yeah. And I guess I was just kind of in that shock state. It, it took me several days to finally really come to the realization that this is really what has happened. And then what happens after that? I mean, are you just searching for answers, wondering why he did that and how it happened? How it came to be? Um, My big question is why he, you know, what set him off to that point? I got the toxicology report back, you know, thinking maybe he had been on some drugs or was intoxicated and he was, and negative for everything. He had, I think, a, a blood alcohol level of 0.06, which is not even legally intoxicated, so he had maybe had a beer or so, and he was completely sober. So I'm not, I, it just, it completely shocked me that he went to that, to that extreme when three hours before that, he was here with the baby, and me and him were getting along fine, and when he left, he was laughing and joking to go and, and coming back and taking someone else's life and his own. And so 
looking back or, or maybe with what the police determined or what you think, do you think that Dustin came to the house that day planning on, on shooting Michael? I personally don't. Um, the reason I say that is Dustin, um, I don't feel like it's the type of person who would be able to go to prison. He, I don't think he could, he could live with that type of lifestyle. So the only thing he could, he could live with is what happened. If he took someone else's life, I feel like he took his own, but that's the reason he took his own life was to not be held accountable for it. And I don't feel like he anticipated on this whole thing happening the way it did happen because I had checked his, but I mean, I really just went through everything in my mind that I could think of trying to figure out what would have set him off. And I had checked his, you know, bank statements and stuff like that. He had paid his bills that day. You know, I don't, I, I don't think in earlier in the day that that was ever a thought in his mind, just something snapped and I, I can't understand what caused it. But I definitely don't think he'd come here with the intention of that happening. Yeah, because somebody that's planning on uh, killing somebody else and then killing themselves isn't going to pay their bills that day, most likely. Right. And he was one of those that was a receipt keeper. Um, so when I got his possession sack, I went through his wallet, and there was the receipts from that day. Because he would put his receipts in his wallet, and this was three hours before. You know, somebody who's planning to come and murder someone and kill themselves doesn't care about the $13 they spent at the convenience store three hours before that. You know, it just, it never made sense it, that he, it, it, it just, I don't feel like he was planning it. I think it was just something that snapped in him, and I'm, I'm not sure what caused it, but I definitely don't think it was something that he had planned. So six months later, after the fact, it doesn't make sense, and do you think that years from now you'll still be thinking the same thing, that it just doesn't make sense and you don't have all the answers? Yes. Because oh. Dustin's personality was very non-confrontational, which is what throws me for the biggest loop of all. He's not one of those type of people to initiate a fight. He's not one of those type of people to show up at somebody's house like he showed up. It's that's just not his character. He had a, a lot of anger issues and um I know he was on some antidepressants and stuff trying to get himself together, but he was just his personality was not not the type of person who would show up at somebody's house with intentions to do something like that. I would have never in a million years thought he would have showed up here with Michael here because he's just not a confrontational person. And, and was he known to carry a gun with him or? Yes. He always kept a pistol in his truck. He always, he always. But, you know, like I said, we're from the country. You're out in the woods, snakes, go on the boat, moccasins, things like that. So for people to carry around here, it's no big, I mean, it's very, very, very common. And he always kept his gun in his truck. And I guess if there's any um, kind of positive to come out of this, it's that you and, and the kids weren't harmed. Yes. Um, I do feel like after he stabbed Michael that he had already, he already knew that we had called 911, so the deputies would be here. And I do think at that point is when he decided to kill because he went back to his truck and loaded three rounds in his gun specifically, and he shot and fired at Michael. 
once missed him, shot him with the second round, and then the third round he used on himself. But I do believe that he come in here to kill all three of three of us. Oh my gosh! Um, and and how do you deal with the aftermath? Have you or the kids had to have any kind of counseling or talk to anybody to try and help work your way through all what you're feeling and, and dealing with? Um, he was kind of absent from the baby's life, so the baby has asked a few questions. You know, where's daddy? Is that daddy's truck? And things like that. And other than that, life is exactly the same as it was before because he was not a constant everyday figure in my son's life. My daughter, however, has been in counseling ever since. She has a counselor at her school that she sees a few times a week. And I do go and see a PTSD counselor um, several times a month. And do you feel that's that's helping you to, to work your way through this? Um, I don't, I, I don't, and I feel like, I feel like it's so fresh. I don't know if it's one of those things that time just will have to heal because I don't feel like I'm, you know, recovery overnight, but I feel like it's worth a try to try it, um, to just try to work through it. But I don't, I don't know that it's ever going to be anything that I can rationalize in my head. I just, I don't know. It really has just completely flipped our whole world upside down. And and you mentioned, you know, it's still fresh and maybe a year from now, maybe two years from now, at some point in the future, you'll have a different outlook or look at things from a different view. Yes, I hope so. The thing that makes me so angry about the situation is the numerous amounts of calls that I made to the sheriff's office. The times that the sheriff's office came over there and didn't arrest him, he had threatened to kill himself before, and the sheriff's department came over there and did not even correct him. They just told him to go stay at a friend's house. He showed up at his mom's house when I come to pick up our son before and slammed me into the car. His mother even admitted to seeing it. And the deputy said because he didn't physically put his hands on me because he hit me with his chest, that wasn't battery. They never once arrested him. I had pictures of handprints around my throat. I had witnesses where he had that two who had seen him do it and one who he had admitted to putting his hands on me. I had text messages from his mother and him admitting to, you know, seeing all this and him doing all this. And nothing was ever done on their part. And this it, happened literally two weeks after I moved back to my hometown to get away from that county, hoping to find safety over here where I'm from. And that didn't that didn't work. And unfortunately, no, I lit, I literally uprooted my children and moved back home, forty five minutes out of the way, to be around my family, to be around you know my oldest child's dad, to be around you know my friends and over my support system and it was not even two weeks from the time I moved to the time the incident happened. Wow. I, I know, you know, we're talking about how fresh this is. Um, but if there's somebody out there that's like going through what sort of what you went through and they're in a, a kind of situation like this based on the, the, the experience you went through in the, the six months that's gone by since, what advice would you give somebody if, if there's somebody out there listening that has a similar situation they're in when compared to yours? I would definitely say, you know, if you're experiencing domestic violence, call the police. Make them listen. 
keep at it until someone hears you. I feel like that's why a lot of women, you know, don't report it. It's because a lot of times it's not taken seriously and things are not done. Make them listen. Keep reporting. Keep calling and do what you need to do to keep yourself safe. Remove yourself from the situation. Get a restraining order. Do whatever you need to do to make someone listen and to see that this is a serious situation so that you don't end up in the same shoes. And that's sound advice. And hopefully if there is anybody out there listening that's going through that, they will take some kind of actions to protect them or to protect their children uh, to keep themselves safe. Yes, I, um, I definitely wouldn't wish this on anyone else. We are healing, but it's slow and you can't replace what you've lost. Um, at the end of the day, my son still doesn't have a father and I lost my best friend. You know, me and Michael were not only in a relationship, but he was my best friend. So the person who I would talk to about this situation is not here. And I'm going to one day have to explain to my son why his dad's not here and the horrible story behind the whole situation. And hopefully by then that you've grown and, and, um, healed some and and have some uh, outlook that will help tell him that break that news to him and uh, he can deal with it in a a way that will be helpful and not um, harm him emotionally or. Yeah. I've, I've really hope um, that he can find peace with this. Just as I hope that me and my daughter can find peace with this. And I hope that this is one of those situations I've always said, I don't want my children to have to recover from their childhood. So I hope this is one of these things that we can, you know, get help for and hopefully see the light at the end of the tunnel. And this is not something that we have to suffer through our entire life. That maybe we can get it under control and move past it. That's what I hope. Well, I I know this is is still very fresh for you and and the pain and stuff that you're going through is, is got to be still very uh, on the surface and I appreciate you opening up and and sharing with us and helping deliver that message uh, about domestic violence to spot those warning signs. And, and maybe there's no guarantee that this would have helped in this situation, but uh, who knows it, it may have, and, and maybe there would have been a different outcome here. Yeah. I mean, I cannot say if the, the cops would have taken it seriously and issued me a restraining order if that would have stopped it, I would just hope that maybe it would have deterred it, but you never know until you try. And I just felt like I was kind of a sitting, you know, a sitting duck when I took them out, when I went to the sheriff's office and reported it. And I'm like, okay, are you going to go, you know, pick him up now? And they're like, oh no, we have to investigate it and this, that, and the other. I'm like, so you're going to go basically tell him that I have accused him of doing all this, but not arrest him. I was like, that's a, that's a, that's a death sentence. And I got out and walked out. I wouldn't even finish filling out the paperwork because I was too scared for him to find out and me not to have protection. And that's got to be a, a, a feeling that, you know, here I am looking for help from you and mm-hmm. you're going to make things worse possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how I felt. I felt like I was literally in this by myself. Well, again, I, I hope that you and your family, uh, continue to heal and, and can put this behind you as, as best as you can and that things uh, improve for you as you go along. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the Murder of My Family. 
Special thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. Once again, just a reminder, October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, there is help available. You can visit websites like ncadv.org or breakthecycle.org for support and guidance. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to invite you to listen to a preview of a true crime podcast that I think you'll really enjoy called Let's Talk About True Crime. Be sure to give it a listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hey, you know what? Just like you, I love true crime. I love it so much, I started a podcast called Once Upon a Crime. On that podcast, I give you a new true crime case every week in a storytelling style. In my new podcast, I've decided to give you a little taste of something different. Because you see, I love to discuss true crime with others, and I don't get a chance to do that often enough. I started to feel like I was missing out on the conversation. Now, I know you have plenty of true crime podcasts to choose from, many in a discussion style format. I mean, you can take your true crime with a beer or a martini or a glass of wine. But until now, you weren't offered true crime and tacos. And really, what could be a better combination? But seriously, I started this new podcast because I want to talk about the things you want to talk about. Each episode, I and a featured guest host will share, review, and discuss everything true crime. We'll talk about the newest true crime documentaries and series, breaking true crime news, the latest buzz about true crime and social media, and even trending news and gossip about your favorite true crime podcasts. You never know who might join us. Guest hosts might include your favorite podcasters, investigators, journalists, documentarians, even celebrity guests. The only prerequisite is that they love true crime and tacos. So take a seat at the table, grab a taco and your favorite hot sauce, and join me, your host, Esther Ludlow, and let's taco about true crime. You can find Let's Talk About True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts. That's T-A-C-O about true crime. Just look for the cute taco logo.